0: Well, I've got Giovanni Tizo. Is that my, am I saying that right? Saying Giovanni well. Tiso. I'll, I'll be honest. I copied Kim Hill, so <laughs> I was pretty sure I was going to get it right.
1: Well, actually, I kind of broke Kim Hill when we did that show. I sort of. Um, I told her how to do it during one of the breaks and then during one of the songs. And when she came back, she just, she had frozen, couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I gave her a little note, and that was the end of that. You said it very well.
0: Okay. Awesome. Wow. Well. Put that on my CV. Uh, so Giovanni is a writer, a translator, a researcher, a blogger, a tweeter, and most recently for our conversation, an editor and contributor to a new book about journalism in New Zealand. The book is called Don't Dream It's Over, Reimagining Journalism in Aotearoa. It's published by Free Range Press, and it's it has a Wellington launch on Thursday That's this Thursday, the 14th of September. And that's at the New Zealand Film and Television School on Vivian Street at 5.30 p.m. Giovanni is going to talk to us about the book. Thanks very much for coming on B-Side Stories. Thank
1: you for the invitation.
0: So this book is um, 36 chapters, multiple authors and contributors. It's all about the state of journalism in New Zealand. So, why the need for a book? Is there a bit of a crisis in Kiwi journalism that we should be worried about?
1: Yes, yes, I think I think there is, and I think it's um, you would find very few journalists who would say there isn't right now. And the fact, in fact, in fact, since we started working on the book, which was back in January, um, there has been, of course, the merger proposal between Fairfax and APN. So, the two major newspaper owners in the country are proposing to. Merging to one which is you know it's a fairly strange thing for an advanced democracy to have just one newspaper owner for the whole country, and the document they put forward um, was pretty much stating um to the Commerce commission to in order to get them approved was pretty much pretty much stating you know we're dying here we um, yeah, actually need to do something to <laughs> we need to do something pretty extraordinary for uh, to to just keep going a bit longer um that's not really. What uh, prompted us, um, the, we originally had the idea for the book after uh, Duty Politics came out and after the election in 2014. And one of the things that Duty Politics had highlighted was um, a pretty critical vulnerability um, to manipulation on, on the part of the media. It was very, very easy for a small group of not terribly bright people to um, to control um, the way that information was put out in the mainstream for, for political ends, um, and that's for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of them being there are uh, there are few gen- there are few political journalists. There's um, just the, the the ranks are thinning all the time. There's more and more uh, PR people and political spinners, and sort of that balance that was always quite precarious historically is is, is become even more precarious now. Um, and so I approached Range Press, which is a Christchurch, um, a Christchurch press, a Christchurch cooperative. They, they put out one of my favorite New Zealand books, which is called Once in a Lifetime. It came out a few years ago, and it was about the reconstruction of Christchurch. Um, and I suggested that um, many times, actually, that the kind of um, blueprint they had for a book, getting people with a lot of different kinds of ex- expertise to talk about the same problem and come at it from, come at it from different angles um, was a really, really good uh, way of um, collectively trying to work on something. And so I suggested, oh, maybe they could do something like that. Yeah. So. And then they came back to me and said, yes, we are going to do something like that. <laughs> so that was pretty much how it came about.
0: That's lucky. Thanks, Free <laughs> <Yes>. Range. <Yeah. laughs> That's right. So who was it... Um- was it sort of your brainchild or, or a group of people who um, worked on the I just kind of – I,
1: I wrote a, a blog post, I think it was September, October of two years ago, in which I just purely made that suggestion. You know, sort of that, that idea. So looking – we sort of need to look at a rebuild. And, and here's a book that looked at a rebuild for something else, of a city. And we could actually use that sort of idea for, for something like journalism. And that was, that was the extent of it. Um, and then um, I think it was Barnaby Bennett who's one of the other editors said, oh, well, we're going to talk about it because we're, we're thinking about what our next book is going to be, and this is actually um, something that we could work on. And once they decided we were going to go ahead with it, they suggested I should come on board as a, as a co-editor, and, and we've been working on it together. It's been a very um, collective um, enterprise.
0: So is what the book is doing, you talked about it as like a – talking about a reconstruction, is the, is the book offering some solutions of how journalism could look in the future?
1: Yes, basically we asked all the... Even though the book is divided in chapters, it's not kind of a traditional division where you've got some people are going to look at one aspect of the problem and some other people are going to look at another aspect of the problem. Um, we actually asked everyone the same question, which was, um, yes, there are problems and what you, what is your reading of what those problems are, but also, how would you reimagine it? What, what, what is your personal idea of um, not only how we can get out of um, this particular um, juncture, but also how? What, what are your aspirations for journalism? What are your? Cause I think we, we, so there are some suggested solutions. There are some suggested um, practical things that can be done, or projects that can be undertaken. But there's also um, an attempt to really break down what journalism does. Um, into its several separate functions. Um, And that's really valuable because once you look at it that way, you say, oh, journalism is necessary for democracy. And you go, well, why is that? What what particular aspect of journalism is necessary for democracy? And once you've isolated what that is, then you say, well, then how do we um, safeguard that particular function or how we uh, rescue it out of the particular situation in which... uh, which is essentially a, a market failure. It's a commercial crisis that the media is undergoing at the moment. Um, so, how do we how do we do that?
0: Yeah. So, could you could you
2: maybe explain a little more about the commercial crisis that you're talking about? Um, essentially, um,
1: and you could disagree with this, and someone wasn't disagree with mis- with me on this the just the other day on uh, going west of the festival we were doing in Auckland, but. Um, my sense is that the news the, the media aren't in crisis because um, people have stopped wanting to consume news, there is a, a big appetite for the consumption of news um, with what is in crisis is our ability to make to make money out of it um, and so when I say our ability and the corporate, corporate ability to make money out of it. Um, so the, the newspaper industry was hurt a lot more by the fact that they lost um, the monopoly on classified advertising. Then they were hurt by the fact that fewer people want to buy the newspaper. So when Trade Me became a thing, uh, and then it was sold, you know, and then Fairfax bought it. But anyway, it sort of did. Newspapers, there was a huge earner for newspapers. And when Facebook and Google came on the scene and they were allowing people to deal directly with one another... And they were allowing companies to deal directly with people, and so the advertising is not only that digital advertising is less profitable um, the harder to monetize um, easier to switch off, but it 's also that companies can communicate directly with customers, and so they don 't really have a need for the advertising mm-hmm, right. if you buy a you know if you, if you go to the library and you, and you get out a copy of the listener from the 1980s um the listener, of course, had a monopoly uh, on on certain kinds of information. So it was selling like three hundred thousand copies in a country, of three million, which is pretty extraordinary. But if you look at the advertising, it's cars, liquor, tobacco. It is massive earners. Mm-hmm. Um, that ability is simply not there anymore. That, and um, and so you've got the situation you've got now, where very very few, um, you know, compared to the past, very few um, generalists are. St- are employed, and this is obviously not just in New Zealand. Our biggest media company, the the companies that own the most from advertising in New Zealand are Google and Facebook. Um, And so they're the media giants, and their interest in supporting journalism is minimal, even though they make a lot of money out of it. But they don't deliver it, and they don't have a particular corporate citizenship. They don't feel a sense of um, obligation to actually sustain it. And they don't pay a lot of taxes, <laughs> so which means that if you're looking at uh, doing yep. it on the on the public side, then you've also looked yep. what kind of resources are you going to do it with
0: when you look at the uh, while we are losing journalists as big media companies downsize and try to streamline onto more digital platforms, there's also been a proliferation of small sources. Um, Bloggers and independent journalists who are reporting on things um, in their own small way, how is that contributing to the collective conversation that news gives us? I think
1: it's uh, the fairly, still a fairly long way away, at least in New Zealand. It could be, maybe it's different in other countries that have got more of a, a critical mess around these things. But my sense in New Zealand, and being a blogger myself, is that we could do a lot better. Um, I think we could... Um, uh, often we provide commentary, but uh, much more than we provide um, actual journalism and the, the, the other kinds of journalism, reporting or analysis of, of hard data, that kind of stuff that is still going to be really needed. I think David Simon a few years ago said that, um, that the day he was going to see someone from the Huffington Post in a council meeting in Baltimore, then he 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 would know that journalism was going to be all right. But the Huffington Post doesn't send anyone to (laughs) council meetings in Baltimore because there's no, uh, or sanitation meeting, that kind of stuff, because there is no, uh, they have no interest in doing it. Um, I'm actually quite hopeful about that side of things, and I see it in a lot of um, political causes. So um, there is a sort of, we don't call it journalism, but around things like environmental uh, struggles or things like disability rights, Often you will find that the people who have the most information are actually people who are activists. And they've become, over the years, this is not a new kind of digital era thing, but they've always been good at gathering information and collating it and presenting it. And and I think this is something that we could organise around a lot more. Um, So I I didn't have my own chapter in the book, um, but if I had one, um, I might have... um, proposed that having a sort of a resource centre for independent citizen journalists would be really good because journalists need legal protection, journalists need training, journalists need um, to be able to sift through information is a a skill Um, and also you need I think ethical guidelines. One of the flip sides of that I think is the fact that um, untrained citizen journalists to work um, out of passion following a particular project, they sometimes tend to um, just follow what they want. They, they, they have a particular idea and they follow it and they really want to almost bend the reality to it. So the, the, they, don't, they lack that kind of... They lack an editor and they lack the kind of background that tells them, okay, what you're doing here is not really journalists You're actually applying something to your own ends and I think there's a there's quite a lot of conspiracism that comes, unfortunately, that proliferates around that. So that's something that we really politically we really gotta guard against. it's one of my fears in terms of progressive politics. Um and having something and, and that's one of the great things about Nicky Hager is the fact that he you know, everyone calls him a conspiracy theorist, but actually he doesn't operate like that at all. It is he's ferociously um faithful to the facts. Um even when they don't support uh, the ideas that people would like, <laughs> would like them to support. And so there is, I think there is a lot that we can do in order to educate ourselves and to edu- educate one another to these problems and also give each other tools to do yeah. it better.
0: And Nicky Hager is one of the contributors to the book, and he'll yeah. also be at the Wellington launch if people want to come along and see a panel discussion that includes him and other journalists and contributors. Yeah,
1: that's right. There's going to be Peter Griffin, Kate Honore-Brett, um, and him um, and uh, Tess McClure is going is to do the compare, the moderation.
0: Yeah. yeah so it should be great. Uh, out of curiosity, how do you get your news?
1: I came here, so I came to New Zealand in 1998 and I was a pretty staunch newspaper buyer and television news watcher and I stopped immediately <laughs> as soon as I got to New Zealand. Huh. It was partly because um, I wanted to keep in touch with news from home, and there was the internet, which was a pretty new, the World Wide Web was a pretty new thing. Um, And so I got onto that, but also I just couldn't, I just bought, I tried to buy the paper here, I tried to watch the news, and it was, I find it really difficult to believe what I was, you know, it it was just a different language. It was a different language. Are you saying that it's
0: um, it's a bit quaint in New Zealand? Or-
1: I'll be completely honest. When my partner came back to New Zealand, so we lived in Italy for a number of years, and she came back to New Zealand, I think, in 1996, and she, and I had never been, and she brought back a VHS cassette of a few television programs to show me. Again, this is pretty much pre-internet, so it was the only way. Um, and one of the things was the news, and I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't sure that it wasn't satire. I could tell. Mm, is this is this actually are they taking, <laughs> you know? They am pulling my leg here. Um, and then it got to the end and it got to the last 10 minutes where they were doing the weather. And then I knew that it had to be satire because people couldn't possibly be that interested in the weather and it couldn't possibly have such production values behind what the, what the weather was going to be like the next day. Uh, and it was true. that She was she was swearing that it was true. And, you know, this is not a put down, you know, there are some great people who work in television. Management. It was a different language. And and I was used to a much more, I suppose, traditionalist and, and um, there was no entertainment. Basically, very little entertainment value in Italy at the time around television news. There was no advertising. So it was a very different beast. And, and newspapers, I found them extremely uh, facile and, and, and very thin in terms of the kind of content of they were uh, delivering. It was the, the uh, In those days, it was to the Dominion and the, po- the Evening Post. And the second issue of the Evening Post I bought had a pretty straightforwardly racist editorial against French people. And when they were doing the 36-hour thing, um, I was like, oh, those lazy fringe. <laughs> I couldn't quite believe that I was, <laughs> that I was supporting that kind of uh, journalism. So I thought, like, okay, I'm going to keep away from that. And so for a while I had trouble actually, well, except for radio. Radio was, radio was great and was far better than what we had back home. So essentially radio was my source of news. But um, it wasn't until a few years later when then newspapers went online And you could actually then pick, because there are great reporters, there are great people who work in journalism and television journalism and and print journalism, but you didn't have to buy the entire package, which I couldn't quite stomach. You could just read the thing. And I've been doing that, and I I think I'm reasonably well informed about what happens in New Zealand. I'm not supporting it financially in any kind of way, because there's no paywall, I don't buy the paper. Um, I no longer pay the TVNZ um, tax because it doesn't exist anymore. Um, only support reading New Zealand through my taxes. That's pretty much all I do. But um, that's opposite. That's part of the problem.
0: In five years' time, will we all be paying for our online news? Do you think behind paywalls?
1: I don't think so. No, they they still haven't done it. And if they go to a single, well, well, I suppose if they go to a single company, maybe they will. But good luck making us pay for some of the stuff. (laughs) Um, and. you know, r- reporting is expensive. Um, are people? I, I, I don't. I don't see how it could occur, because Radio New Zealand, uh, News Hub, and TVNZ are always going to have the websites as well as the services in which they give you the news. So that kind of reporting is always going to get that way. So the only thing and and it's free, and it's and it will remain free. There's no particular reason for them to charge for it. So then, let's say that they managed to merge, which is far from certain. If they manage to merge it, they're gonna have this website. Um, if they pay a wallet, they're gonna be the only people who are asking you to pay for stuff. And then would you pay for it? I don't know, I'm not entirely sure.
0: It's a bit hard it's a bit hard to put a price on something that people are used to getting for free.
1: Yes, but also you need at the point to be competing with other people who are doing it who will be continue yep. to do it for free. Um, I suspect that, what, that one thing that might happen is that uh, we're going to get locally on newspapers again, and you're going to get really local news um, and syndicated uh, national and international news from from local papers. It was kind of we're going to start that cycle again, which could be great, because um, and there are a couple of other chapters in the book talk about that. Um, things like, you know, Simon Wilson in particular has a chapter about, um, you know, he says that this is an opportunity for newspapers that no one um, has ever had, no one who works on them in their lifetime has ever witnessed, and and the opportunity for him is um, the politics of building cities, um, not just Christchurch, but Auckland, and it's now expanding at an incredible rate. Um having a newspaper that actually is able to, and he's suggesting that the Herald hasn't been doing that job, um, having a newspaper that actually connects um, its its readers with the process of city building um, could be a great opportunity to actually read, you know, find a new rationale for newspapers. Um, and there could be something that happens.
0: I, I'm i actually a, a student of radio journalism at Fiti Rea Polytech. Great. Um I talked to some of my classmates about what they would want to ask you, and people really are thinking, "What is my job going to be? Am I going to have a job if I'm trained as a journalist? What kind of skills are most important? Do you have a view on what uh, what people who are trained as journalists will be doing in five and ten years' time?"
1: Well, I, I can't claim any sort of expertise here, and I'm sort of you know I'm not a journalist myself. Um, I think the skills that are taught in a journalism course are going to remain crucial for a really long time. The people who practice them might not necessarily be called journalists. Still, um, they might work for organisations like Greenpeace. You know, Greenpeace is hired an investigative journalist. Uh, you know, that a lot of organisations are going to need, you know, need have always needed and continue to need people who can search for information and present it and presented very well. And one thing that journalists have been taught and have been taught well as well is how to write and how to talk. And those are really important skills in a variety of jobs. I think it's going to be more permeable. It's going to be the kind of profession where, yes, maybe fewer people are going to be employed in traditional radios or newspapers than or televisions than in the past. That is not to say that you need fewer graduates from those courses they might find work because writing is an absolutely essential skill. Uh, oral presentation is an absolutely essential skill, and, and information gathering, sort, searching for information, is is going to remain. If, it's, if anything, I would say is going to become more important. I have a son who's fourteen, and if he has any when we you know when it's time for him to go to university, if he suggests um, oh, I might want to become a journalist, I certainly wouldn't say, oh no, there's not going to be work there. So, that will be my personal feeling, but who knows?
0: All right. Ha- Martin, how do you feel about the future of journalism in New Zealand?
2: I'm not sure. Um, the thing which disappoints me so often about New Zealand journalism is that, you know, if you think about our largest online news source, it's stuff. You know, this is the place where everyday New Zealanders go to get their news, and so much of it is opinionated, and, you know, it's, um, it's, it's so, so diluted. And it's almost uh, the facade of news, and and then it's you know the main bulk of it is entertainment, and that that troubles me, you know, like that that a big chunk of our middle New Zealand, and that is what they go to, and and they're not able to differentiate between, they can't pick out the genuine pieces of news from the the huge tide of entertainment, which is which is it's in there, but trying to find it, trying to locate it and that's what troubles me less so than our ability to report and to to um, continue to, to do what we're doing what worries me is do the people want that and um, I, I, I struggle to see I, I I would hope that genuine journalism moving forward can find a way to break into that market um, but it's really in the end it comes down to the consumer and You know, all you've got to do is turn on the six o'clock news, pick up the Dominion, look at stuff, and realise how far removed from genuine, um, genuine, you know, reporting and journalism. That's it's a small piece of a much larger puzzle of just rubbish, and that what that's what worries me. I think the journalists and people that are going to want to do it are always going to be there, but the really worrying thing is that middle bunch of people that. I'd much rather just click on stuff and see the cat video. And that's the that's the troubling thing for me.
0: Is it is it the audience demand that's driving the decline and the rise of entertaining news? I don't know.
1: I don't know. I mean, is, like I said before, you know, I was disagreeing about this the other day with um, the journalism panel in Auckland. Um, I don't get that sense necessarily. I, I think um, digital. I mean the. the the quality of digital websites here astounds me, um, and if I have to say, if I look back t- at, at, at Italy, the main, main states, uh similar to the Herald and and Fairfax here and, and the Fairfax papers here, they didn't just go for broke and completely forget about pr- putting out quality journalism on their websites at all. They didn't completely devalue the brain like in two years. You know? they, they actually start with a pretty traditional. Approach to the, they put a website in which the news is organized um by stuff that you know on the whole is important you know the important stuff at the top and the rubbish at the bottom and the rubbish is very entertaining I love you know often i if, if if I were to meter it if I were to actually look into what I click on I might find that actually cat videos uh, feature more prominent than i would have, that I would admit in public uh-huh. but uh, but still uh, there's someone who has taken the trouble of organizing information. At least they've been telling me this is what we think is more important. If you want to scroll down and you know, that's fine. Yeah. We we probably make our money that way. But you know, remember at the top there was a huge earthquake, or there was this, or there was the other thing, this is a really important piece of political news. I think it's quite strange that we lost it here. And if you look at things like the New York Times website, you look at the Guardian website, um, it's like every website in New Zealand went for the Daily Mail approach. Mm-hmm. And I actually think it was a mistake. Mm-hmm. I actually think they They underestimated the public. Mm. It's not working. They're not making a lot of money out of it. Mm. Um, And I think that the the, the wheels have fallen off the wagon of the Herald in the last month. And uh, uh, Russell Brown has suggested that it may be because of the merger. But suddenly the Herald website is unreadable. It's become all that. Mm. News from something quirky happened in Texas, and it becomes the leading item. And I think they will come around because I don't think that's
2: sustainable. I do hope so. I do because hope we can. So. Yeah, I I've, personally speaking, I've I've completely I don't I don't look at stuff, I don't listen, I don't watch the news. I just can't because if I switch if I go to stuff, it's just like I feel like I'm being brain dead when I'm watching the same thing for sometimes for the news, even on T V, you know. So I do hope that they're you know, they are able to find a I don't know, a a better solution.
1: Well we can't compete. Compete with America on cat videos. Right? Just can't <laughs> simply can't. <laughs> <We have laughs> to know homes. your niche, yeah. we don't have well. We just we have more cats and uh, more webcams, and we can't do that. So I think we'll need to come around to a slightly more sensible approach at some point. But the book is about grappling with, with mm. the, those kinds of problems as well. It's not just hoping that certain things will happen, but also saying, oh, how could we make them happen? You know, what is it that we could organise about and for, and, mm. and mm. what are some ideas that we can put forward that might stem this.
2: So uh, where is the um, – can, can we get a few more details about the actual launch before we finish About up the today? launch? Yeah.
0: yeah, for sure. So the launch is on Thursday. It's at the New Zealand Film and Television School, uh, Vivian Street. 5.30 p.m. is the start.
2: Entry? Free. Absolutely.
0: And there'll be nibbles. a, a panel discussion <laughs> with nibbles and drinks.
2: Okay, Great.
0: Giovanni, uh, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to find out more about you or get their hands on the book, what's a good way to do that? Oh,
1: that's a good question that I should have prepared for. I think if they look up "Don't Dream It's Over, they'll find a the song. But if they <laughs> add the word <laughs> – so that wouldn't be very smart. But if they add the word Free Range Press, the word Free Range Press to that search, they will be directed to the book. And the book is in good bookstores and it's doing quite well, so we hope that people will support it and I hope they'll enjoy it.
0: Yeah. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. A um, lot, lot of food for thought there.